Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. The philosopher uh, René Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. If you're a good capitalist, I suspect there are some in the room, you might have the motto, I consume, therefore I am. And more recently, uh, Sigmund Freud, the Austrian psychotherapist, would would have been able to declare, I have sex, therefore I am. It's a modern slogan. I don't watch Married at First Sight, though I think there are probably people in the room who do. (laughs) And a couple of seasons ago, one of the cast members was known as the Virgin, right? So he'd been cast anyway as that person who... Uh, was to have drama built around him as everyone got to try to get him to bed. Though I suspect that in backtracking, we've discovered this guy wasn't quite as much a virgin as he made out for in the movie. There's a movie, A 40-Year-Old Virgin. When I Googled this, I typed in 40-year and the first thing that came up was the movie. We are confused and obsessed by having sex. Sex and sexuality are a bedrock of personal identity in our world, often the defining feature of who we are, which draws on post-modern philosophy, which highlights the local over the universal, what's personal is more real than what's universal. So how we think about ourselves, express ourselves physically, becomes the touchstone of who we really are. In a sex saturated society. Being single and celibate is a really hard call, but I suspect for those of you who are married, it's probably not a lot less difficult as well. And I feel this particularly as a single, celibate, same-sex attracted man. How do I build my identity, my sense of self? How do I think about intimate self-expression if this is actually not an option for me as a Christian. So in this sermon, I want to step back a little from the pastoral issues and think about the Bible's view of sexuality and marriage, uh, then proceed to speak to some pastoral issues after that. I do have a lot of skin in this game. Uh, I've had several of my theologically liberal colleagues in Melbourne write to me and tell me that my view of uh, marriage and homosexuality is wrong. Uh, They thought that I needed to learn about this stuff. But, of course, I need to go back to the Scriptures and justify, think again, about why I've made the call I have. Understanding sexuality is not just trying to do a jigsaw without the lid and the picture of the jigsaw you've got to make. It's not just trial and error, work it out for yourself. The Bible gives us the picture on the lid. That's the template from which we work as we work out what it means for us as a community and for individuals. Yesterday, Peter Adam preached from Genesis chapter 1, and you might have noticed that God spends most of his time in Genesis 1 separating things, either the things above or the things below, or separating out different kinds of things on the earth. And God separates out men and women and gives them a dignity that no other creatures bear. They have his image. 
and his image is reflected in what they do with their bodies. In fact, the big principle of Genesis 1 is that a gendered body is one of the givens of life in this world, like the language you speak or the colour of your skin. We might not always feel comfortable in the gendered body we have, but Genesis 1 makes this the big principle. But interestingly, after separating out things in Genesis 1, God decides there's one thing he's not going to separate but join together. Man and a woman in marriage, that they might be one flesh. If you read just Genesis 2 in an isolated way, you can tell the story of marriage, but it's so much more contrastive with what's gone before it in Genesis 1, the beginning of 2, because there's only one thing that God decides he's going to actually draw together. Man and a woman in one flesh union. Of course, reflecting God's ultimate plans for the world. Gender is something that we don't have uh, choices in, at least. Gender is something that we all experience. Gender is a gift from God because it helps us to make attachments in the world. No matter your, your status, married or single, we all experience our gendered bodies, and that's a gift to help us make attachments. Now, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, men and women, or Adam and Eve, sin and they misuse their bodies, their gendered bodies, to hurt each other, experiencing pain, both in childbirth and in work. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't yet celebrate our gendered bodies, our sexuality, after the fall, for in Song of Songs we see a beautiful depiction of what God still thinks of the beauty of the sexual union. Jesus doesn't overturn the Old Testament as he teaches about sex. He doesn't try to improve on it. When asked a question about divorce, he sends his interlocutors back to Genesis 1 and the purposes for the creation. And Jesus knew his world. The Greek and Roman empires knew homosexuality, but still Jesus affirmed that a sexual relationship between a man and a woman is the only option for those who follow him. Or to flip it, he never affirms a sexual relationship between men or a sexual relationship between women. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6-9 trains us to think that we can leave behind all kinds of sins and sexual immorality. God has compassion on us, doesn't leave us where we were, but offers us a fresh start. Grace trains us to say no to unrighteousness, uh, Paul writes in Titus 2.12. Such were some of you, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, speaking of uh, homosexual behaviour in that passage. God has compassion on us, doesn't leave us where we were, but gives us grace and power to lead new kinds of lives. If Paul in Romans 1 speaks of the wrong, wrongful objects of our lust as a sign of disorder, katafusen, contrary to nature, 
In 1 Corinthians 6, he speaks of the hope which Christ brings to create order again. And just as the story of the Bible begins with the union of one man and one woman, so the end of the Bible describes a wedding feast, a moment of celebration between a marriage, the marriage of Christ and his church. The power of sexuality to bind us to each other is used as a picture, a metaphor for the bond between Christ and his people, the goal of history. There is no marriage at the resurrection in Matthew 19 because there will just be one marriage between Christ and the church. Sexuality will have achieved its good purposes uh, from Genesis 1 when God builds a new world in which he can enjoy intimacy with his people forever and ever. Sexuality is a gift to help us make attachments in the world. Sexuality is a gift which makes us, helps us make attachments in the world and gives us a picture of attachments in the world to come. It's hard to say, but the scriptures don't give us any option if we're same-sex attracted to express ourselves uh, through genital intimacy. That's just not the kind of oneness which our bodies or the universe were designed for. But having a gendered body is nonetheless a gift from God to help us build attachments in the world. Gender pulls us out from ourselves to the, world, to the world around us for both men and women towards both men and women. A gendered body or feeling sexual attractions is not necessarily sin. Let me read from James chapter 1, a verse that's been really important for me. I'm in James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and are enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Can you see the difference here between being enticed and being sinning. Desires give birth to sin, but they are not the same as sin. Having gendered bodies is God's good gift to the world and helps us make attachments. It's just that some attachments for those who are same-sex attracted aren't options. So where does that leave us pastorally? I saw a Netflix show you might have seen as well called Coming Out Colton. It was released at the end of last year. It's a six-part six series, a really excellent series, about an NFL player in the US who was the bachelor, if you know what that means. Uh, and he decides after the show he's assaulted a woman 
and dependencies were ruining his life to make public his same-sex attraction. Now, the series is actually really excellent. It's magnificent storytelling uh, because it's a drip-feed way of kind of introducing us to Colton's story. It's only a few episodes in that we discover that he went to church, uh, long since had gone to church, and found great comfort when he moved to his new home from friends there. But he decides he has to speak to his friends about his same-sex attraction, so he invites them over to play basketball. Uh, His Christian buddies are uh, uh, in his front yard and he calls him in and kind of explains what's going on for him. Uh, There were lots of bro hugs. Uh, They all, I think, did a really good job in affirming him, loving him, caring for him. And they also said, but we disagree with your decision, your lifestyle decision to pursue a gay lifestyle. I actually thought the friends did a pretty good job in engaging with him. But in a subsequent episode, Colton reflects on how cruel it was that they said that they had a disagreement. He therefore interpreted it to mean that they don't love him after all. It really, it really impacted me, partly because the storytelling was so excellent. He decides, therefore, to attend a gay-affirming church. Uh, it was introduced to some folk there, and he found a connection uh, with their understanding of the scriptures. I pondered for days what I'd say to Colton if I met him. And it might be a good exercise for you as well to watch the series. There's a couple of episodes that are a bit confronting, but with pastoral antennae, trying to work out what you say might not be a bad exercise. Well, I I assumed I wouldn't say to Colton uh, that change is promised. That's unlikely to happen. I don't think I could say to him that he might well find a wife who's prepared to forego sex, though I do know a number of men who are married to women men who are same-sex attracted who've nonetheless in their marriage worked out uh, a way of loving each other despite the fact that sex is not a big part of their lives. I couldn't promise Colton that singleness wouldn't be hard or lonely and I know I shouldn't try to explain to him what I think had caused his experience. I couldn't promise change of orientation or promise a wife or promise that things wouldn't be hard, what could we say? This has got got very tender now. Since the 17th of February in Victoria, there are new laws about what can be said to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction or other kinds of sexual identity questions. So it's only a few weeks old, this legislation. Its basic point is that we must not coerce. But I assume that in pastoral care, our job isn't to coerce anyway, whatever the topic that happens to be raised. There is a useful document summarising what Christians or clergy might say or not say. If you want to email me, I'm happy to send that summary page to you. 
it's not really easy sometimes to work out the lines of distinction, especially uh, for clergy it might be a bit easier, for mums and dads talking to their kids it might be a bit more challenging. So how would I respond to Colton? Well, I think for all of us the first thing is just to listen and then to listen and then to listen again. And that would be the case, that would be wise pastoral advice even if there were no legislation in Victoria, right? Lots of listening. I think the person you're speaking to probably knows some of the things you believe anyway. It's probably not the moment to raise it. But we do need to reframe the conversation. So rather than, as Colton's friends did, point out the ways they disagree, I think we can reframe the conversation by saying to those of our friends who are same-sex attracted or suffering from other kinds of gender dysphoria, uh, how much you contribute to our fellowship, how much you bring to the life of our church, that you have something to offer, not just something to deny. I'd also want to say uh, that desires and not our destiny, that is, what we feel is not actually in the end the most important thing about me or my future. Our desires actually don't control us. Or if they do, any kinds of desires, we're probably struggling as human beings. Desires can be so fickle. And in that conversation with Colton, I'd want to relativise the issue. No matter what our sexual identity, we all have to learn, unlearn, relearn what it means to use our body for the good of others. That's something that all human beings have to learn, whether they're married or not. Those are a few meagre tips. I think this is part of a conversation that will last the next 75 years. But beyond that conversational context, let's make sure we're inviting people into our homes. You might know the story of Rosaria Butterfield, a feminist lesbian academic who got converted when a very conservative Christian couple welcomed her into their home regularly. Now, she was an academic researching Christianity, so she took the initiative to reach out to them in the first place. But she had never seen hospitality like she found in that home. And she described in her books how lesbians had worked really hard to provide hospitable environments for those who were struggling with their sexual identity. And so she thought she was good at it. But she found in this, uh, this elderly, conservative American Christian couple a generosity like she hadn't known before. And so few Australians have anyone in their home these days. Like, it's just not something we do anymore. Uh, the average Australian only has people in their homes two or three times a year if it's not granny or, or, or some immediate relatives. And more generally than in just speaking with Colton, we can teach people 
that singleness isn't the end of the world or it's not a punishment from God, but actually in 1 Corinthians 7, singleness is described as a gift. It's a calling, a vocation. Same-sex attraction can be a gift to help us. uh, I'll start that again. Same-sex attraction can be a calling to serve others with the things we've learnt about living in the body and discovering the wonders of gender as a means of building attachments in the world. And I think this text from 1 Corinthians 7 has been kind of really important to me. I remember uh, about 40 years ago I was having seeing a psychiatrist about my same-sex attraction in Kew. I was still living in Queen's College, one of the residential colleges at the university, and I remember having... Uh, having spoken to him for a couple of years, uh, driving back from Kew along Sudley Park Road into Carlton and just weeping in the car uncontrollably and at the same time calling out to God, use my experience to bless others. Use these things that I've learned about what it means to live with bodies in this world to help other people in their own following of Christ. We often speak about microaggressions, but actually it would be good to speak as well about microaffirmations, those hundred tiny things a day that you can do that are going to help those, your friends, who are struggling with these kinds of issues. Uh, It might be microaffirmations in language or touch or invitations, but they go a long way. We shouldn't expect all same-sex attracted Christians to use the same language to describe their experience. Different words mean different things for different people, and that's fine. I've never been in the gay scene, so the word gay means nothing to me, and I don't find it a particularly attractive word to use. But other people will disagree and choose that that's the best way of capturing what's going on for them. But beyond these more granular kinds of suggestions, we ought not to forget that the greatest resource that God's given to us is the church, Uh, the Christian fellowship to help us navigate life's challenges is the most extraordinary blessing that we just take for granted. Perhaps because we've been around Christians for so long, we're more likely to see the way they annoy us than the way they bless us. But Christian fellowship is extraordinarily important and gives people a whole new context for understanding what living as a Christian, what living as a human being, can mean in this world. I must say as well, uh, my experience here at Ridley in care from my colleagues and from students has been exemplary. There has been not a moment that I haven't felt cared for or affirmed in all the right ways. This has been a magnificent community to belong to, and in lots of ways it's my primary Christian community because I spend a lot of time here. If you wanted to talk through any of these issues, you could talk to me, of course, but my hunch is that there'll be others amongst the faculty and staff who will be able to talk through things with you too. They have wonderful pastoral hearts. Friends, this is just the beginning of a conversation and I'm sorry if it's been rushed or you, you have lots of questions that I haven't answered. But let me conclude by saying, no matter what your sexual story, your struggles or your identity, my prayer for me and my prayer for us this week is that we might be able to sing, Christ.
Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Amen. <laughs>